Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. As these children are going out, that uh, Mrs. Jokey was having to ask uh, James Morgan <laughs> to be quiet in Sunday school and listen, right? <laughs> and uh, he is a pastor of Celebration Bible Church. He's been senior pastor there five years. He served on the staff there as associate and also uh, began part-time, I think, there about 10 years ago after he graduated from Grace Bible College in 1998. So let's pray. Father, as uh, Jim opens the word to us today, may our hearts be open to your word. We thank you for the privilege of coming and gathering around the word of God this morning. May our hearts be sensitive to you and bless him as he opens it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Dad. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, It's good to be back. It's always good to be back here uh, with my family, my home church in Seattle. What's that? My clicker is down there. Thanks, Gary. It's right here. It's good to be back with my home church because Gary's here to make sure everything's in line and that's good. Many of you might not know this, but me and Gary were in uh, a boy band when we were in college together, and so it's kind of kind of had an urge to get back back there. But it's it's always fun uh, to be back home and uh, and to be in Seattle. I bring greetings from Michigan. Um, I saw you guys had a white Christmas this year. That was very cute. Um, but. <laughs> I bring you greetings from Michigan. The church I'm at, uh, Celebration Bible Church, actually, um, you may or may not know this, but this this church here has been profoundly impactful. Um, we've had four pastors in the history of our church, and three of them grew up here in this church, or at least spent a lot of time in this church. Uh, Craig McDonald uh, was one of the early pastors. He was here for Norm's funeral this week. And then Paul McDonald, who was an elder here for a while, uh, was a pastor until I took over. And actually this morning, Brian Schurstad, who many of you know also grew up in this church, preached for me. He's the chairman of the elder board. So uh, the legacy of this church, um, be proud of that. That's something that you can be proud proud of, the way that that, that continues. But enough of that. Let's get into the scripture, shall we? Uh, we're going to be in the book of Mark, uh, chapter 1 today. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn with me to the book of Mark, um, chapter 1. We're going to dig into the text together. But before we actually get um, get into the, the word here, I want to spend just a couple minutes doing a little bit of background to kind of set the scene a little bit. I think this can kind of enrich uh, what we're about to read. A lot of times when we talk about the cultural setting of the New Testament, the cultural setting of the world of Jesus, uh, one of the terms that is used is the phrase Messianic expectation. Uh, messianic expectation is just kind of a fancy word. Uh, that scholars use. But basically, the idea here is that in the first century, um, the Jewish people were living under the oppression and the occupation of the Roman Empire. The Romans had uh, dominated the world, and the Jewish people were basically at their mercy, kind of living with this sense of uh, not a lot of hope. However, as they read through their scriptures, uh, as they spoke together and taught together, they began to discover this hope that was very clearly implanted throughout the text, throughout the scriptures, that even though right now they were living under a time of oppression, there would be a time when God would deliver them from that and would restore them back to uh, the people that he had always created them to be. And the person that God was going to use to do this delivering uh, was going to be someone from the line of David, a son of David, a king, uh, and he would be anointed 
to lead the people into a new a new era of life. And so the, the Hebrew word Messiah simply means the anointed one. So there was this hope, okay, that even though they were living under oppression now, this was not going to last forever. That God was going to bring someone who would restore us back to having power, back to having authority, back to the people that he created us to be. However, along with that hope for a Messiah, there was also a hope uh, within the first century world that God would restore the work of the prophets. So during Israel's heyday, if you're familiar with the story of Israel, during the time when they were um, a kingdom, when they had a king, when they had an army, when they had a, a government, when they had an economy, when they had power, one of the primary ways that God spoke to them were through these men and these women, these prophets, that would come and they would uh, begin by saying something like, thus saith the Lord, not in King James English though, but they would say, thus saith the Lord, they would speak the word of God, and they quite often would call the people to return back to God. However, when the Old Testament, uh, what we consider the Old Testament, what the Jewish people just consider the Bible, uh, when it was completed with the book of Malachi, uh, the tradition of the rabbis during the time of Jesus was that God was no longer speaking through the prophets. He had spoken to us through the prophets for a long time, but right now the prophets were silent. So sometimes this is simply referred to as the silent years, not because God was silent, but because he wasn't speaking through prophets anymore. However, just like there was hope that God would rise up a king, an anointed Messiah to bring restoration, there was also a hope that God would once again renew the work and renew the office of the prophets. So I want to um, bring your attention to um, a couple a couple passages here, not from Scripture. Um, there's a very important historical book called First Maccabees. It's not inspired like our scriptures are, but it was written about events that took place about 150 years before the time of Jesus. And it gives us a really good insight into what the Jewish people were thinking at the time. Okay, So let me show you a couple passages from uh, the book of Maccabees. In this first one here in First Maccabees 4, um, they're talking about uh, if you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah, we won't get into that, but basically the Greeks came and took over um, the temple in Jerusalem. They recaptured it, and the Jews are now trying to decide what should we do with it. So check it out. They say, uh, they deliberated what to do about the altar of the burnt offering, which had been profaned. And they thought it was best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So when the Greeks came, they, they made it so it was no longer pure. They're wondering, what should we do with this? So they tore it down. And they stored the, stone, the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come and tell what to do with them. Okay, So about 150 years before the time of Jesus, uh, there is this very clear hope that one day God will once again bring us a prophet. And when that prophet comes, it's going to mark a new era, a new time when something big is about to happen. A little bit later in 1 Maccabees, it says this, The Jews and their priests has resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arrive. So again, they're kind of reestablishing themselves. They decide to point this guy Simon, say, hey, you're going to be our leader for now, forever, asterisk, until the prophet comes. Okay, so I'm showing you all of this stuff so that you have a, a firm understanding that there was in Israel, leading up to the time of Jesus, this very clear hope that not only would God bring a new king, but that king would be preceded or that king would also be connected to the return of the prophets. When a prophet came, that means something big was about to happen. 
When the prophets showed up, that means God was on the move and something big was going to take place in Israel. Okay? Now let's take all of that and move back into uh, the book of Mark. Whoops, there he is. All right. Book of Mark. Verse 4. And so, uh, verse 1 through 3, that's good stuff. I'm just going to jump right in verse 4. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all of the peoples of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, Mark uh, gives us a whole lot of detail into what's going on here with this guy, John, John the Baptist, right? He fills in a lot of gaps and tells us a lot, just in a few short verses. First of all, we see that he's out in the Judean wilderness. He's kind of out away from the city. He's out away from um, the, the, the major kind of religious center. He's in a place where quite often a lot of the prophets of the Old Testament uh, would have been operating and would have kind of lived and spoke and done their things in, in the wilderness. And so John's out there, and he's calling people to come out to him, and he's preaching uh, about forgiveness of sins and about repentance. The word repentance uh, literally means to return or to turn back. Okay, so John is out in the wilderness and he's calling to people to return to God, right? We're starting to make the connection here already. He's out in the wilderness, he's calling people to return to God, and he's offering them this baptism of repentance. Now, scholars are pretty much uh, in full agreement across the board that what John is talking about here, um, this, or what John is doing here, this baptism, is very different than um, the baptism that uh, a lot of kind of churches and Christians participate. At our church and here at your church, we uh, emphasize the pretty clear scriptural mandate that uh, the baptism that is essential is a baptism that we all participate in when we put our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that's a, a spiritual baptism, a spiritual act where we're brought into the body of Christ. That is the essential. However, we also know that many Christians all around the world practice different forms of rituals to kind of represent that. Either way, what John is doing here is very clearly not that. This is not some sort of initiation where they're brought into a new sort of community. But what John is doing is he's preaching this baptism. He's calling them to participate in this ritual as a sign of them coming back to God, right? Not coming to God for the first time, but coming back to God. Because really what he's doing is he's operating like any Jewish priest would. Uh, John is from a priestly family, and he's operating like a Jewish priest. He's recognizing that these people are far from God in their actions, and so he's calling them to return to God. And as a symbol of that returning, he's asking them to go through this ceremonial cleansing. Just like if you were a Jewish person in the first century, and you had kind of gone off and I don't know, touched a dead body or something, or played with, I don't know, something unclean. Uh, played with something unclean. And something unclean. Uh, you would not be able to fully participate in the community until you were ceremonially washed, until you went through all of the proper washings. This is what John is doing here, right? He's calling them to come back to God, and part of that is 
uh, is this ceremonial cleaning. So we get in all this detail about what John is doing, and you don't have to know a whole lot about the Old Testament to see that this is kind of different, this is kind of weird, and, and it's making connections between what John is doing and what the prophets are doing. However, Mark also gives us a lot of detail about what John is wearing, right? He's wearing these animal skins. He has a leather belt wrapped around his waist. He's eating this weird food. There's not a lot of places in the Bible where we're given a lot of detail about the uh, clothing choices of the characters. It's not really going to get into a lot of first century fashion uh, customs and fashion trends. So the fact that he brings our attention to this uh, probably should should make us think. And so we see John uh, dressed like this. This is actually one of the only remaining photographs of um, John the Baptist, so it's lucky we we got to see this. Um, but we get in these details about what he wears. Turn with me to the book of Second Kings, chapter one, um, and we'll see why is it that John or why is it that Mark uh, cares so much to tell us about what John is wearing. So in Second Kings, chapter one, um, this is a text that's taking place kind of during that heyday that we were just talking about when Israel had a kingdom, when they had power. Um, with the authority, things were not great at this point. The, the kingdom was split, uh, but this is this is that time. Um, right in Second Kings one, it picks off uh, picks up right where First Kings uh, leaves off, surprisingly. Uh, and at this time, there is a king uh, in Israel named Ahaziah, a king in the north named Ahaziah. Um, and in verse one, it says this: After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah, who's the king of Israel had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. Okay, uh, Stay away from lattices. You know, they, those are dangerous. Um, so he hurts himself. He sends messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. So the god of Israel falls through the lattice, as you do. He injures himself, and he decides, The way I should solve this problem is to go talk to the god of Ekron, and the god of Ekron will tell me if I'm going to get better. Seems smart, right? Um, verse 3, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah, one of the great prophets in Israel's history, Go up and meet the messenger of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going off to consult Baals above, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not leave the bed you are lying in, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. Elijah goes to these messengers. Uh, he tells them exactly what he had said. In verse 5, uh, the messengers returned to the king. And the king asked them, why have you come back? In verse 6, a man came to meet us and, and he told us that uh, uh, exactly what he said. Is there no king in, in Israel that you went to consult this guy? Then jump down to verse 7 after he tells the king what, what was said by this man. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair, and he had a leather belt wrapped around his waist. Now listen to Ahijah's response. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Okay, so the outfit, the clothing that Elijah wore was so well known, like this was his uniform, that all you had to say was, oh yeah, it was the guy in the, in the hair with the leather belt. And the king immediately knew that this was the prophet. Okay, so, so why is this important? When we go back to Mark, right? Mark is giving us all of this detail about what is going on here. He gives us all of the detail about what John is wearing because what Mark is trying to do, and this is, this is really key, what Mark is trying to do is to draw our attention 
to the fact that this guy is different. This guy is out of the ordinary, and this guy fits the bill of the prophets. This guy fits the bill of this thing that we have been waiting for until the time when God arises such a prophet to tell us what to do. Here he is, the prophet. He's out in the wilderness. He's calling people to them to return to God. He's dressed the part. This is it. This is the man. And so the question that we need to ask and the question that Mark's audience asks, if the prophet has arrived, if a prophet is here, what's next? If the prophet is a signal that something big is about to happen, and the prophet is now here, what's going to happen next? And of course, John himself, right, he recognizes this, and that's where that last, that last phrase, that last sentence back in Mark 1 is, where he says, uh, the one who comes after me is more powerful than I, right? So John recognizes he's pointing to something. Mark wants the audience to see that this is a big deal. So, what's next? Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came up from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Now, if you are... Uh, have been around the church for a while, and you've read this passage, you've read this story, um, maybe we just kind of breeze by this. So yeah, this is the baptism of Jesus. These are the things that happened. Let's get to the good stuff, right? I want to see him fixing the broken people. But uh, we want to sit here for a second. Because if Mark is taking all that time to draw our attention to the fact that John is very different, John is this hope-for prophet, John is pointing to something big, now we see Jesus coming, and I think there's a lot of questions that we could ask of why is, why is Jesus going out for a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin? And, and there's some studies we could get into on that. But what I think Mark is really focusing on here is not why Jesus came out to get baptized, but what happened when Jesus got baptized. Because what happened when Jesus got baptized is pretty out of the ordinary spectacular things, right? We have these three, uh, events that take place in this, this kind of immediate short period of time here, we see the heavens being torn open. Um, that word is very specific. It's not kind of a gentle, the heavens parted, ah, right? The organ music started playing. Uh, but they were, they were ripped. It's this violent term that we don't see very often in Scripture. But when we do, it's always kind of connected with God breaking into the world. It's always... Uh, has to do with God doing something big. And so the heavens are ripped open, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends upon Jesus like a dove. And I think sometimes we think a nice little dove kind of floating. But I don't know, maybe I've seen a dove land, like, bam, you know. Uh, could have been like a dive bomb, who knows. But uh, the point is, right, the Holy Spirit is now coming upon Jesus. And again, this doesn't happen very often. And when it does, something big is happening. When we're reading through the accounts of all the other people who were baptized, it doesn't say, and all the people came out and baptized by John, and every one of them had the Holy Spirit descend upon them. Right? This is a unique thing. This is a different thing that's going on here. And there's a lot that we could get into, um, but I just want to kind of point out how unique and how different it is. And perhaps the most stark example of uniqueness is when this voice from heaven comes, and this voice is clearly the voice of God, Right, And he says, 
uh, about Jesus. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So these three things happen when, John, when Jesus comes out to join John uh, on the, in the Jordan River for this baptism. John is already uh, being described as this unique prophet, this one who we've been waiting for. He's pointing to something. Now Jesus comes and these crazy things happen. There's a lot that we could get into, and, and, and there's a lot of studying and, and parsing we could do here, but I want to suggest something. That what Mark is trying to do is actually quite simple. What Mark is doing in the description of what's happening at Jesus' baptism is actually very simple. And what that is, is Mark is simply trying to point out that Jesus is unique. That Jesus is different. Jesus is not like all of the other characters we've met so far in Scripture. Jesus is not like any of the other people who've come out to be baptized by John. But Jesus is different. And I say that, and and if you're here today, um, whether you've been a Christian for decades or months, or maybe you're just kind of interested and and you're kind of checking it out, that statement is probably not going to catch you too off guard, right? The idea that Jesus is different, that's kind of the whole thing about Christianity, is we think Jesus is different. I think we say that, we recognize that, we affirm that kind of cognitively. But I wonder if we, including myself, sometimes fail to kind of fully capture and understand and respond to that and what that actually means. Sometimes I think maybe we may affirm that Jesus is different, but we don't recognize how critical it actually is uh, to say that and to know that and to, to dig deeper into that. So a couple of texts that I think really help us to, to kind of set that in, kind of get us sunk into that reality. Um, during the Advent season, I'm, I'm sure... Uh, you often spoke on that passage in John, in the beginning of John, where John uh, says that in the birth of Jesus, the Word, which is his kind of uh, name for God, becomes flesh, that God himself comes down and takes on flesh. But I want to draw your attention to Colossians uh, chapter 1. You want to turn there with me real quick. As we're thinking about what does it mean to affirm that Jesus is different. Why does it matter when we say Jesus is different? This is what Mark is trying to do. As he starts his gospel, he's trying to draw our attention to the fact that this guy is different. Uh, just kind of a, a side note, the other gospels have different ways of doing this. The other gospels point out that Jesus is different by uh, showing the way that he was conceived through the Holy Spirit, by showing these angels and these wise men and all of this fancy stuff connected to the, the actual birth narrative of Jesus. Mark does it a different way. Uh, But when we turn to Colossians 1, if you're a Bible marker, highlighter, asterisk, or this would be a good passage to to make a note on. In verse 15, Paul says this, The Son, remember uh, the voice from heaven, you are my Son. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or or things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This rich, rich, rich passage. But let's just look at that first line. The Son is the image of the invisible God. This is a really important concept for us to understand. Because what Paul is saying, he's affirming what John was saying, he's affirming what the scriptures say, he's simply saying this, that the primary way that God himself, the creator of all things, the primary way that God has revealed himself to us as humans is through the person of Jesus. The primary way, another way to say this, the primary way and perhaps the only way that we as humans can fully know God is through knowing who Jesus is, through knowing his son. He is the image of the invisible God. The primary way that God has revealed himself to humanity is through the person of Jesus. And so when we talk about Jesus as being different, Jesus as being unique, We're not just saying, oh yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. Uh, Jesus had some nice things to say. Jesus was able to do miracles. That was great. All of that stuff is part of it. But on a deeper, more profound level, the reason that it's so important for us to understand who Jesus is is because God's primary way of revealing himself to humanity is through Jesus. So, if that's true, if he is the image of the invisible God, if God is made known in the fullest way to his people through the person of Jesus, how do we then get to know Jesus? That's kind of a Christian-y term, right? When we talk about knowing Jesus or knowing God. But what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like to know who Jesus is? What does it look like to know Jesus? How do we get to know Jesus? I want to suggest... um, three ways that we can know Jesus, and this is where where we'll end. The first way uh, that you know Jesus is the simplest, yet without this, <laughs> this whole thing is rubbish. Uh, the primary way to know Jesus is to put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The primary way to know him is to enter into his family, to enter into his community. Not by works of righteousness are you saved, Uh, but by faith in the finished work of Christ. And so the primary way, the primary mode of knowing Jesus is through putting your faith in Jesus, by putting your faith in him. And if that's something you haven't done today, uh, by all means, now is the day of salvation. Uh, Today is the day to wrestle with that. Today is the day to open yourself up to what it means to put your faith into this unique person of Christ. But after we do that, after we kind of work through that, we know Jesus by putting our faith with him. But the primary way that we know Jesus, just as the primary way God reveals himself to humanity is through the person of Jesus, the primary way that we get to know Jesus is through Scripture. And I love uh, what's going on here at this church this year. You guys have always been a church of scripture. That's your DNA, that's your culture, that's who you are. But kind of bringing that emphasis to even a sharper point this year. The primary way to know who Jesus is is to be people who know him 
through Scripture. People who read, people who engage, people who look towards Scripture to understand who Jesus is. We start in the Gospels, right? We read through the life of Jesus, we read through these actions, but then we read uh, through all the ways that he impacted and worked in the early church. We read through the letters, we read through the epistles, and we see how this life of Jesus is now shaping and transforming these people. We have to be people who are saturated and are anchored to the Scriptures. If we seek to know who Jesus is, because we affirm that Jesus is unique, and we affirm that the only way to fully know God is to fully know Jesus, we have to be anchored in the text. As Christians, the only way that we have anything to offer to the world is not through cultural relevance, right? You hear that a lot, that we need to be, the church needs to be relevant. The church is irrelevant. We need to find ways to be relevant. Being culturally relevant isn't bad, but that, that is not what we as a church have to offer. The thing that we as the church have to offer is being people who are molded and shaped by an alternative narrative than the one that's being told in the culture that so many are hoping to be relevant to. The scripture offers a narrative that's different. The scriptures offer a way of living that is different. The scriptures offer a way of being human that is a different way, a different mode than what's happening outside of the text. And the thing that we have to offer as a church only comes about when we are committed to being people of the text. When we are committed to people, to being people who are saturated in scripture who know the Scriptures, who read the Scriptures, who are anchored firmly to the text. Like I said, sometimes that may not be the most fashionable thing to hear, right? But this is what we as a church have to offer, the text, the Word of God that has been given to us, which reveals who Jesus is, which reveals who God is. If you are not grounded here, if this is not your starting point, I don't know where you're going to end, but it's not knowing Jesus. Are you in the text? Are you saturated in the text? Are you anchored to Scripture? Do you find your example of who Jesus is through the text? Paul says it this way. Uh, he says, through, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as they try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. When Paul seeks to find the anchor for his guiding, it's Christ. As we dig into scriptures, we find that same thing. So the first, the second, uh, the first way is to put your faith in Christ. The second way to know Jesus is through scripture. The third way to know Jesus is through rumination, right? Because we can read the scriptures. We can learn the scriptures, we can study the scriptures, and we can know facts about Jesus. But there's a difference between knowing facts about Jesus and knowing who Jesus is. Now, this word rumination, um, I primarily know it as kind of like this logical idea of, of thinking through something. Um, but you may or may not know that this is actually a word that comes from um, the animal kingdom. Uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> this may give you a little hint of what it's like to live in Michigan, um, but when I, I shared this stuff with my congregation a little bit ago and 
one of my people who grew up on a farm came up to me afterwards. She said, how did you learn that word rumination? You're a city boy. How do you even know that word? The only way that she understood rumination is because of the way that it's used on the farm. So a ruminant is a type of animal who, what? You know, choose the cud, right? So the way that their bodies are created uh, is so that they can take their food and they can chew it. They can eat on it for a while and then they swallow it. And then what happens? It comes back up, and they chew on it some more. And then they swallow it. Then it comes back up, and they chew on it. It sounds disgusting to us non-ruminant beings in the world. But if you are a ruminant, this is the way that you get the full offer of nutrients out of that food that you're eating. This process of chewing and swallowing and chewing, and it's slow, and there's no hurry in rumination, but it's this process of getting it inside of you. Uh, trainer drove my attention to last week's sermon that uh, Pastor Jim preached, and I'm glad that I, I listened to it because uh, he spoke about the Eugene Peterson book, Eat This Book, and that's the same idea of getting the text inside of you to ruminate on scripture, to ruminate on the person of Jesus. Now, this is an art that is lost in a culture that is very dependent on moving to the next thing as quick as we can, right? Where do we get a lot of our food? As we roll down the window of our car, <laughs> eat it. You can't eat it, right? In your car anymore. But, you crazy Seattleites. Uh, Michigan, there's like no rules. You can just do whatever you want. Uh, but, uh, in our culture, right, this is a lost art because we are so into how can we get the most out of something in the quickest amount of time so that then I can move on to the next thing. To truly know Jesus, to truly engage with Scripture, takes something more than a fast food meal. It takes rumination. It takes slowing down. It takes bucking the cultural trend of let's move on to the next thing and say, I'm just going to sit with this and I'm going to chew on it. And I'm going to chew on it. And I'm going to chew on it until it gets inside of me and becomes who I am. And as the text gets into you, as the person of Jesus gets into you through that process of rumination, then you can be Jesus with skin on, right? Then you can be the Jesus that is encountering and engaging and presenting yourself to those who have not read the Scripture. But you must be anchored to the text. You must be ruminating in the text to know who God is you must know Jesus. To know Jesus, you must know the Scriptures. And to know the Scriptures, you must eat and ruminate and swallow and chew and slow down. These things are not always easy to do, but this is critical. If we as a church seek to be the people that we have, called to, that we have been called to be, we must be a people who are anchored in the person of Jesus. We must be a people who are anchored in the text. So are we there? I know I am not always as engaged. I'm not always aware of the power of rumination and the importance of those things. But are you willing to slow down? Are you willing to open the Scriptures? Because Jesus is unique and Jesus is different. We must be a people who know Him in a profound way in true way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of Scripture, but more importantly, we thank you for the gift of your Son.
We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of your Son. Beyond that, we thank you for the fact that simply through faith, you have offered us the opportunity to be reconciled to you through that person of Christ. It's my prayer that we understand that, that we dig into that, and that we become committed to knowing who Jesus is through knowing your scriptures. God, give us the courage to do that. Give us the pace to do that. Help us to be willing to slow down and ruminate on who Jesus is and how unique he is and what that means to us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Will you stand with us one more time? Thank you. Amen. I didn't know what I, when I asked Jim to preach, I didn't give him any instructions, didn't know what he was going to preach on until yesterday, but uh, obviously it fit right in with what we've been talking about. Next Sunday, we're going to have available for all of you, if you'd like, a little pack of cards. There's 50 Bible verses. I'm going to encourage you to, with us to memorize one verse a week. And for the next several weeks this spring, we're going to be focusing on that verse during our morning message. And you'll memorize it the week after. And so I invite you to do that and share with us in that. Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, Jim, coming up. We're going to close in prayer. You can come out with me. And uh, when I said about Alice asking Jimmy to be quiet Sunday school, um, I was kind of joking, obviously, right? But <laughs> it's just a reminder, it's just a reminder as we consider our youth and children's ministry in this church, as people like Alice, who dedicated a huge part of her life, decades, to teaching first grade children, week after week after week after week. Awana, Pioneer Girls, Youth Sponsors, Camp, VBA, we're investing in the future. Jim has the opportunity now to invest in his church family, and it's good to go there and see all the children and young people in his church family. Uh, this is a great investment, and I want to thank you for investing in the young people in this church. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that we may come to know him better this week. And has already been offered. If there would be a person here who does not know Christ as Savior, they would open their heart to the good news of salvation and begin their new walk with you even this day. And if you have, they have any questions, may they come and ask us and talk to us. If they're not sure yet, we'd love to pray with them. We thank you that we can learn about you. Remember our Lord Jesus Christ told the rabbis and the Pharisees, you study the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but those are the things which speak of me. And it reminds us, from Genesis to Revelation, the entire book is related to our Lord Jesus Christ in the story of salvation. May we be people of the book, but more than that, may we be people of the Lord, and may people see the Lord in us this week as we come to know you better through the Scriptures. We pray this in Christ our Savior's name. All God's people can say together, Amen.